Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and uh, welcome back. To Dave Tyndall. Hello, Dave. Hello again. Who would have thought? Things have changed since your last appearance, but uh, we won't dwell on that. But all, all I'll say is it was either you or Andrew Neal. He's, he's not busy now, but uh, <laughs> he wouldn't answer my call. So w- welcome back. Now, for those who maybe weren't with us last time you were on, just explain who, who exactly you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that'll clear things up for people who think, who the heck's he? Um, I'm a, a friend of the podcast, mm. I guess. Well, I am. Um, that came to it in lockdown, having having been a subscriber to Snooker Scene magazine in the eighties. Um, then it, I kind of reconnected with Snooker during lockdown. Bought myself a six by three. Started playing reruns of the nineteen eighty two World Championships. Bought a Steve Davis wig, like you do. Um, so yeah, I'm just sort of a maybe the kind of. Um, a good fit for this in that you, you like being quirky and a bit a bit different so maybe my presence can add a bit of uh, strangeness to to this rather than having a, a proper guest well it, this podcast is nothing if not ripped from the day's headlines because of course you're you're a big noise in golf as well and we just had the Ryder cup um you you do they tell you do podcasts and, and and you're a sort of betting expert i suppose well hopefully yes <laughs> <laughs> How did you see that? I mean, you you did tip an American victory, I believe. Yeah, I, I did uh, tip a, a sort of convincing American uh, win. I think um, home advantage is a big thing in Ryder Cups, even more so. It's it's um, as as the years go on, we're now not even getting close Ryder Cups. We're just getting hammerings wherever it is by the home team, and um, linking it back to snooker maybe. Um, there's something I'll say later about home advantage. Okay. One, I mean, I sort of, I'm not a massive golf fan by any means. I dipped in and out. I, I found the the build up unbearable. Um, I know you, <laughs> I know you were part of that, and and hopefully made a, made made a few quid from it. But it was so overhyped. And of course, what happens is you get to the start of it, and the crowd are just out of control. I mean, it was just kind of, you know, it just, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't listen to them. But also the 
some of the coverage and you know good luck to our, our dear friends at sky sports but some of the coverage was so bombastic i thought yesterday's come on the guy's gone could it be the day <laughs> of destiny and then they play all this music it's just it's just golf at the end of the day isn't it well yeah it's it is a long way the the, the build-up just takes forever especially when it's in america so you're not even getting started until half what you know afternoon on friday and there's only so many things you can say. I'm glad I did my podcast early in the week because I'd kind of just gone around in a loop by about Wednesday afternoon. Um, but yeah, it does get hyped and it like a big boxing match, isn't it? When it gets hyped and then the outcome's a bit naff, it all seems a bit embarrassing. I just think, and we're not a golf podcast, but my final word on this, when you know we saw Rory McIlroy was in tears and some of the others and they were saying, you know, this is the biggest thing in golf. I think gun, if, you, if they took a truth serum and it was a gun to their head, surely winning the Open or the, or the Masters is it's got to be ultimately bigger, hasn't it? I don't know. Well, I think that they because they spend 52 weeks of most years um, playing for themselves, mm. so individual, when they kind of get back to this team thing, I think it really does sort of get to them. They really do appreciate maybe what they haven't got as people and in, in an individual sport you know they haven't got teammates like footballers or rugby players or cricketers so I think it does really get to them and, and they realize oh, I quite miss all this camaraderie even kind of ice people who are, are tough to crack like Brooks Kepka. I think he realized he, you know perhaps life is about maybe just having shared experiences so I think it, I, I do believe Rory I think it, it's a bit in the moment when he says that but I, I think it's genuine when he when he does get choked up about about how his week's gone and it's not gone well when he's he's been in such this close environment with a load of his buddies. Well, there is relevance to all this because I did last week on uh, on Twitter uh, just float the idea of a, a sort of snooker version of the Ryder Cup. I mean, obviously in pool, they have the Moscone yeah. Cup, Europe, Europe, the America. In tennis this weekend, they have this thing called the Labour Cup, which is Europe against a sort of rest of the world team, even 10-pin bowling. They've got the Weber Cup, you know. So there's a lot of sports have these sort of uh, battles between continents and whatever. And my idea was maybe Europe versus Asia. So you'd obviously have a lot of Chinese Thai players in the Asian team. European team would be largely British-based, but opportunities for other players as well. I put a poll up. We had over a 1,000 respondents. 60% were in favour. It's fair to say a lot of the 40% who were against were very firmly against, which surprised me a little bit because this this event doesn't exist. So it's not like, you know, it doesn't actually exist. It's just an idea. Um, quite a few people said, really, to make it competitive, it should be the UK against the world. I'm not yes. in favour. I'm not, but I'm not in favour of that because I think actually that would that would actually flag up how snooker is lagging behind other sports globally. If, if Britain had one team and you, what you're saying is the other 200 countries of the world were all in the other team. So I do think personally... Maybe Europe against, you could say, Asia-Pacific, or maybe Europe against the world as they, as they do in this tennis event. The exact format, how it would work, how many players, how they would be chosen, I don't know, but it was just an idea. The thing is, though, I mean, snooker feels like a very individual sport, but like you say, golf is that as well. And then suddenly when they're in a team, you can see what it matters to them. So it may, it may be a runner, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've watched plenty of Moscone Cups and thought it was great, mm. and you can see how much they're enjoying it. Um, yeah, I'd want... I do think it's a good idea. I'd I'd want to get kind of Neil Robertson in there somehow. Well, this is the other this is the other thing, isn't it? You know, would the players actually want to play in it? I mean, what is it actually something that would interest them? I suppose you know, I mean, the money obviously might, might come into it, but 
there's no guarantee you would get actually the, the people you would want to play in it. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, I mean I, going back to the the kind of 80s, I think it finished in the 80s, but one of my very favourite events was the that team event mm. when it, it just seemed like you had the perfect split of three good players from a certain country, like Canada, you'd have Werbeneck, Stevens, and um, Cliff Thorburn, of course. Wales, you've got Griffiths, Reardon, and Doug Mountjoy. I used to love those because it sort of had a team feel to it. I don't know mm. what you're talking about is a very different format, but um, I still think the, the overall kind of idea that you get a team involved, I think it would work well just for something different. And I think it, you know, a, a lot of the, the talk about snooker in the last few years has been about sort of mental health and how difficult it is to be out on your own individually. I think a, a team thing would really bond people and, and then that could have a knock-on effect for for the rest of the season. Like, you know, friendships would develop maybe strongly, maybe friendships for life even, and then when they're out and about, they're more likely to bond together maybe. Well, you know, it's just an idea, as I say, um, 60% for what, it, for what it's worth. We're for it, 40% not, we'll see. Uh, like everything, it'll come down to broadcasting, sponsorship, all the rest of it. Why, um, why, would, yeah. why would people be against it? What, what's the negative? <laughs> have you not been on the internet? <laughs> people are against people are <laughs> I know against you've a lot got of things. Have, yeah, I know it's sort of binary and you've got to be yeah. for something or yeah. against something. But what, what's, the, what's the downside of it? I, like I say, it's the internet. People people tend to be against stuff. Uh, but uh, speaking of speaking of for and against, and this is what's known as a segue. Um, <laughs> we, we've been speaking recently about the crucible. Of course, Judge Trump made his comments, thinking the World Championship should move on. I was pretty clear. I didn't agree. Phil Yates was on last week. He didn't agree. He was very determinedly didn't agree. Dave, you've been to the crucible as a as a spectator, um, as you've told us before, and I know you've got something to say on this subject. <laughs> Indeed, I do. I think if you if you'd asked me at any point over the last thirty years, I would have thought, oh, what a ridiculous question that it's not even up for debate. But since um, it's been mentioned as a possible idea that it couldn't be there, you know, Judd and Neil's comments. By the way, this is another area I want to go into shortly mm. about the fact that they were said by Judd and Neil. Just hold that thought. I will. <laughs> um, yeah, my, I can't believe I'm sort of thinking this now, but I'd, I feel a, if I just said, oh, yeah, keep it there, I, I feel like I'm just another kind of white male from the 80s thinking, oh, you can't <laughs> change this because it's always there. And, and I think when you're making the arguments... For I think to some extent you are seeing it through the prism of of who we are um, as kind of blokes in our whatever forties, fifties, thirties, sixties, whatever that have grown up with it. So to to sort of address some of the things Phil said, I mean that's the great Phil Yates. Who am I to question him? But I just thought I'd I'd mention a couple of things. He he said some of the great moments back to golf here, some of the great moments in golf um, are when the Open is at St Andrews. But I mean, the Open's only held there every five years. So so when Shane Lowry wins at Royal Port Rush, does that diminish what he achieved because it wasn't St Andrews? And then Phil says, um, you, you know, well, viewers 
when they when they watch an open at St Andrews, they see the road hole and all the history of the hotels around it and that iconic land. And you can say the same thing about the Masters. Um, when you see the beauty of Augusta National, you can see Amen Corner, the azaleas, all the pines and the water. But 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 view, viewers on TV, they're watching. Sorry to sort of strip this down to, to mm. the basics. P- viewers on TV are essentially watching a 12 by 6 bit of wood, bays and slate that isn't any different whether you plonked it in Sheffield or, or, or in China. You know, we, we sort of mock, mock Americans when they talk about uh, the World Series in baseball because sort of no one else is invited to take part apart from... American teams. I know there's a bit of a debate on that whether how it got named, but that's how it's viewed often, isn't it? That it's huh, it's the World Series. There are the only American teams, but this is the world's the World Snooker Championship. So why can't it be played in other parts of the world? I think I think there's a sort of problem in the fact that the World Championship for snooker is is it's is it essentially it's be all and end all to, to lots of people. I mean, golf has got four majors a year and a multitude of different venues. So, you know, given that the Masters is at Augusta every year and St Andrews is at the Open, uh, the Open is at St Andrews every five years, it means in any five-year spell in golf, the biggest elite events, you're getting 16 venues in those five years. I mean, athletics has got a world championship that moves around. The Olympics is, is in a different location. But snooker's... It's not backed itself into a corner, but that's just the way it is. Snooker hasn't got the Olympics. It's once a year in the same venue. So is is there not, as a, as a slight compromise, is there not scope to maybe alternate it between the Crucible and, say, China or Australia? Because if, well, say, if, say Judd won it, I know that I'm not being very practical, but if, say, Judd won it in China, would you not say to him, oh, fair play, mate, you, one of your second world title came away from the home comforts of comforts of England so should that not have extra merit that he's, he's won an away world championship well the, the, on that specific point that I mean it all boils down to the host broadcaster which is the BBC now they pay a lot of money to show it they don't want it in another country um it, it's the time's difference for a start in terms of the the, the hours they show it the, the cost of showing it uh of producing it going out to China would you know would cost a lot more um so that really is the reason it's in the UK. What you say makes a lot of sense, actually, on a, on a pragmatic level, to move it around. And actually, uh, this was floated about 20 years ago. Um, uh, snooker fans will remember there was a split in the game and there was a rival tour announced. It never happened. But one of the sort of um, the ideas at that time from leading players, I mean, we're talking big names. I mean, I'll mention one of them, Stephen Hendry, said he thought the World Championship should go to different venues and, like St Andrews, come back to the Crucible every five years. So I absolutely see the logic in it. I don't agree. <laughs> I, right. I think it should I think it should stay there because I think that venue means a lot to a lot of people, including people who've never been there. And actually I've met people from other countries who've come over just to be at the crucible, literally to come. It means so much to them. So I think I mean I made the point sort of the commercial reasons why actually it's a good deal for Snooker. Um I do think the history is actually important. But I can see the other side. I just don't agree with it. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're wrong at all. I'm just saying, and I get what you're saying about you've grown up with it. Well, that is a reason, but that that informs everything we look at in life. Um, yeah. Our experiences, you know. So I don't see that as a bad thing. But I get. get but move on because Judd, you mentioned Judd and Neil. Why they were important? 
Well, l- let me throw this one at you. Mm. Um, what have those two got in common? Well, they're both left-handers. There you go. That, that, that's my answer. I've, <laughs> I've ridiculously done some research about okay. left-handers and venues. Right. <laughs> okay. So why, why might they not want it to be at the Crucible? Because they've both got pretty average records for what they should be achieving. Neil's won it once. Judge won it once. And you can't believe that they shouldn't have won it more. So this this is probably absolute hogwash and gobbledygook and well, You're on the right podcast for that. Yeah, well, that's that. what I thought. Well, I'm going to say it anywhere. <laughs> mm. um, so I, I worked it out, some percentages. Maybe there's something kind of in the feng shui of the crucible that doesn't suit a left-hander because of the way their brains work. And the, the only the only exception to the left-handed argument I'm going to make is Mark Williams, but I think his brain works differently to anyone, so he doesn't count. Yeah. But even if you include him, 40, 47 uh, world championships at the Crucible, just five left-handed winners, so that's a strike rate of 10.6%. So... I looked at some of the other venues, and that is well. Shall I shall I run down them? Do you want the percentages? Go on, why not? Can, why can, not? Off the top of your head, could you could you guess at the best venue for a left-hander? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's quite an, um, um, a new one. There's a clue. Oh, I, I have no idea. No idea. Milton Keynes, maybe. Absolutely, the Marshall yeah. Arena. Yeah. Right. So since we had Marshall Arena stepping in for COVID. 62% of the tournaments were won by a left-hander. So mm. if I was Judd I would, and Neil, I'd be saying, get it there, let's play there, because there must be something in the air. The, the, the next one down was the Arena Riga, 50%. Wow. Good one for left-handers. Alexandra Palace, 33%, still pretty good. The Tempodrome, 30% of all tournaments won there by left-handers. The Barbican, 27%. The hexagon, going back a bit now, 20%. So all these are, are significantly above the 10% of the crucible. Wembley Conference Centre dips to 14. You've got Goffs at 13%. Newport, 12%. And then the two bottom ones, the two worst venues for left-handers are the crucible at 106 And the worst one of the lot, you think of a famous one I've left out? Um, did you mention the conference centre? I can't remember. Yes, Wembley Conference, fourteen percent. Wow. You see, people it, thought people thought Dave Tyndall was just someone who put on a wig and played snooker in his, yeah. in his back room, but here we are. You've done you've done some work. <laughs> who, who, who says Tyndall can't do statistics? Yeah. Nobody does. It's widely regarded as one of my strengths. Um, <laughs> the, the 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 bottom one is the Preston Guild Hall with four point seven percent. A graveyard for left-handers? No one said ever, but I've just no. said it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, where do we go from there? What I will say is, because I want to move on to another, it's, it's related actually this topic, but what I will say is you made a very good case there. Um, you're, I think you're right when you say a lot of us have an emotional connection, but I think if I didn't have an emotional connection, I probably wouldn't still be doing this job. You know, it's something that's in my blood and I would like to see it continue there and I would be sad if it, if it moved. But you've made it. You've made a good argument. Um, but I'm going to move on, Dave, because this is related, actually. Now, Callum Law has written in, and uh, this is what Callum says. 
He says, I'm just getting in touch to express my disappointment after reading about John Virgo saying he expects this season to be his and Dennis Taylor's last with the BBC. I was disappointed when the BBC got rid of Clive Everton and I feel the same way again. To me, John and Dennis are part of a unique and ever-diminishing group of people who have seen snooker all the way from the days of Joe and Fred Davis through the 80s boom, the arrival of Stephen Hendry, class of 92, etc., right up to the current day. As a result, in my opinion, they're uniquely placed to provide insight and I find my viewing pleasure is enhanced when John and Dennis are commentating. The one thing that always comes through with both of them, as it did with Clive, is their enthusiasm and love for the game of snooker. As John said himself, nothing lasts forever, but personally, I'll still be very sad to see him and Dennis leave. I do hope they will at least get a proper send-off from the BBC, unlike Clive, whose magnificent contribution to commentary and snooker as a whole was never properly recognised by the corporation. Well, this was an interview. Uh, thank you, Callum, for that. This was an interview that uh, John Virgo did on the Talking Snooker podcast with Nick Metcalf and Phil Haig last week. And it was an excellent interview. You know, John Virgo is a great figure in the sport. He's a terrific raconteur. He had some brilliant stories about the days of big break and so on. His contribution to snooker should be noted as a player, as a commentator. He was WPSA chairman and, of course, an all-round entertainer. Uh, John, John and Dennis, it's got to be said, both in their 70s, but uh, age shouldn't always be the determining factor. Joe Biden, 78, is president of the United States. Now, we don't actually know the specific truth. This was John Virgo said he was led to believe this was going to happen. Broadcasters, it's got to be said, are often keen to make a statement to show they're changing. Sky did it a couple of years ago. They dropped uh, David Gowney and both of them from their cricket coverage, two legendary England cricketers. Personally, I thought Gower was excellent and his intelligence and his analysis have been much missed. BBC did it, as Callum said, when they dropped Clive. Then they wanted to demonstrate they were becoming a bit more chatty, a bit more based on characters, coverage based around the personalities of the players. It also became much less journalistic. Um, and I think people probably know my opinion on this, but to me, dropping Clive is a bit like the Rolling Stones dropping Mick Jagger. You know, <laughs> prob Probably the first time they've been compared to each other. Change for the sake of it doesn't always work, is, is the point. There's a lot to be said for experience. JV and Dennis have represented snooker very well for a long time. They both played at the Crucible in 1977, the first year. Someone actually this weekend, this very weekend, uploaded onto YouTube coverage of the 81 World Final BBC coverage. Dennis Taylor is a studio pundit. So that's 40 years ago. JV in the, in, in the interval was shown doing his impressions. So, you know, you've got to salute them as legends of the sport. But the other side is, Virgo also said something in this interview, which does in part explain the criticisms Judd Trump made of the BBC before the World Championship and the criticisms that a lot of snooker fans have. He said that Trump had had a disappointing season. Well, the fact is he won five ranking titles and he ended it as world number one. That's not a disappointing season. The problem is he didn't win any of the three events that the BBC themselves televised. Yeah. And this is the charge against the BBC. It's that their coverage exists in its own vacuum and it's not helped. I'm going to bring it up again. It's not helped by World Snooker Tour championing this Triple Crown series, which to me has created a two-tier circuit which sometimes feels like the other events don't exist or don't matter, even though they're all equally difficult to win. Casual fans who only watch the BBC may not care about that. Ardent snooker fans certainly do. And even casual fans still want information on the players. It's not good enough for a commentator to start a broadcast saying they don't know anything about the players they're watching. Now, what I've noticed, of course, is, and this goes back to our, our dear friends on Twitter, many of the people who actually very much agreed with Trump before the Crucible are now the same people saying, John and Dennis should be kept on, uh, su such is the sort of amnesia of social media. The fact is this, look, it's up to the BBC who they want to employ. John and Dennis have had a very good run. Some will want them to continue. Some will want to hear different voices. One thing's for sure is we know with commentary, you won't please everybody. What I will say, as a, as a fan of the sport, I think it will be a sad day if we don't hear them again. They have both put in great service. Um, 
we'll see. I suppose it's just the natural order of things. They, they will be phased out. But do you have any strong opinions on this, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I, I listened to that podcast. It was really enjoyable. I, I uh, sent Nick a, a text saying, well done for asking John about his political views compared to Jim Davidson's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which John wisely dodged, I think. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, I don't really... I. I don't really get it why it's not like John Virgo and Dennis kind of run onto the screen um, dancing and, and, and sort of showing themselves um, in front of the, the camera. I can see why maybe in front of the camera, people might want a sort of younger face, but I think you can't beat experienced voices and they, they, they lend themselves to, to sport. I mean, so many off the top of my head, you know, Peter O'Sullivan in racing, obviously Ted Lowe in snooker. Um, I mean, even now in football, you've got Martin Tyler. I mean, how long has he been doing that? Well, I since mean, the that, 70s, actually. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. incredible. You, you sort of play an old clip and you think, is that Martin Tyler commentator? <laughs> and, it, and it still is, and he's still got relevance, and, and he's still, you know, a sharp analyst on the game. And, and I think... Dennis and, and John, yeah, it saddens me that. When I heard that, I thought, oh, no. I know you could argue this is possibly contradicting what I've said about you know snooker maybe moving on a bit, but I, I, I'd rather those two went out on their own terms because I still think you've got a lot to offer. I still think you can mix. I don't see why it has to be so definitive when you think, right, that's them done. Why can't you just have a mix of them and a few well, it may be, people? Well, it may be fit. To be fair, it may be that we don't know for sure because John, he, he, what he was saying was he, has, he, he that's the impression he's been given. He, he didn't. Yeah. I don't think it's absolutely definitive. I know that IMG, who make the snooker programs for the BBC, they've won the contract again for that, so they're continuing. But as I say, sometimes broadcasters, and it will be the BBC's decision, like to make statements to show that they've changed. They made one at the World Championship. They brought in Trump and Jack Lazowski. Yeah. After um after Judd's comments, so they did actually you know, very much react to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose the question is, you know, how long do people should people go on? I mean, there have been examples of, of great broadcasters. David Coleman was one who probably went on too long because yeah. kind of no one had the, no one sort of wanted to say, sorry, David, but maybe you'll have to stand down. Yeah, but, you know, they, they seem a long way from that stage. I think yeah. you, can't, yeah. you can't buy um, kind of an experienced voice as a common, as a commentator. It's part of the the whole thing. It's not just the players, you know, involved in the action. The, the commentator can bring so much to it, and you you can't just get any old Tom Dick and Harry to come in. So they they're worth their weight in gold. People like John Virgo and Dennis Taylor. I'd be I'd be you know very sad to see them go. I agree, except I do think there's an issue with, and I'm not um, criticising anyone in particular, but if you're going to do the job, you have to be across stuff, you know. And to say Judd Trump had a disappointing season, he didn't, OK? He didn't win the World... He played in three BBC events. Well, in fact, he played in two BBC events. He couldn't play in the Masters because he had COVID. The UK Championship, he lost 10-9 on the pink in the final. And the World Championship, he got to the quarters. So even those three events, actually, they weren't that disappointing. Yeah, um, but does that not... Is this not sort of we're going around in... We're kind of back to where we were. Is that maybe not John's opinion that the World Championship is massive and... It, and if Judd doesn't win that, surely well, you'd say Ronnie O'Sullivan had a disappointing season if he won a few times but didn't win the world, wouldn't you? Is, well, it just, yes, is he just, I suppose, yes, disappointed no, I sounds a bit 
too much, kind of like he's ignored everything else. But I, I think you're right. I think, but put it this way, okay? Where I would agree with 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 you about that and and Virgo about that is, Judd Trump. To, I said this before. To be known, to be regarded as a great snooker player, you have to win. I think multiple world titles definitely, and you have yeah. to win. And yeah, but you also have to win lots of other tournaments. If you look at the greats, Davis, Hendry, O'Sullivan, John Higgins, William Selby. So there's five all-time greats. They've all done that. They've all won multiple world titles. They've all won lots of other tournaments. Judd Trump so far has won lots of other tournaments. He's won one world title, but he's 32, so we don't know you know, how many more he'll win and what his career will look like at the end of it. You can't really judge him in, until you know, down the line. Um, so you could... I, I understand what, what JV's saying, uh, not stepping up to the plate in the World Championship, but you can't just ignore everything else he's done, I suppose. And I, I, I'm not saying he did, but I, I think that, that comment was a bit glaring. I know a lot of players have picked up on it online and said, what are you talking about? Anyway, I want to move on because we, we, we've got other emails I want to get to. Uh, Glenn Shaw, he says, I'm Canadian here. I grew up in North America's fast food pool, but much prefer snooker's cerebral demands, colourful personalities and elegant approach. So new to the sport and really appreciate your podcast. Always interesting. Thanks so much. Two questions, if that's okay. One, why do snooker players tend to tap their bridge hand and or middle fingers as they flutter, prepare for their shot? Two, why do snooker players tend to age out? Ronnie Higgins and Williams excluded, of course. Mental pressures, eyesight, personal time commitments. On the first one, <laughs> I mean, Tony Mio was the most famous. I was about to say that. Yeah, he used to do I used this. To, and I, I used to copy that because well, that's I, thought, exactly the, I saw that's, Tony Mio do it. That's exactly it. I think so many people did that and they didn't know why they were doing it. They just seen Mio do it on telly. So they thought, oh, well, that's something you do. I mean, I think it's partly it's partly a nerves thing. It's partly some people have suggested it's sort of about timing the shot. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think that kind of is it. And the second one, um, in theory, okay, snooker's not a physical sport, so why shouldn't older players be able to continue? I definitely think eyesight is an issue. Um, your eyesight typically starts to change in your 40s. Um, I've seen, for example, Graham Dot wearing glasses, you know, when he's not playing. And that's got to have an effect on how you play because, you, you know, you're, you're seeing things differently. Now, those three, the, the Holy Trinity, Ronnie, John Higgins and Mark Williams, they seem just immune from all of that stuff at the, mo yeah. at, the mo at the moment. But, you know, that's not to say it won't change. I think that will be the reason they start to decline. I think it will be eyesight. They, they, they all keep themselves you know, reasonably fit and, and they don't live wild lifestyles or anything. So I think that could be it. I think eyesight could be the reason. But, you know, Fred Davis, you know, he wore glasses and he was he played at the cruise at the age of 70. So it's not necessarily a career ender, but it might start the decline, possibly. Yeah, wasn't it? Didn't Anthony Hamilton have sort of laser surgery and it mm. didn't go quite as well as he thought? Yeah, and, and the, other side of, the other side of that is Judd Trump had it. And that was just before... He, he he had sort of eyesight issues. He had laser surgery. It went really well, needless to say. And that's just before he started his, his amazing run. So I, I definitely think it's something that's not really talked about, but I definitely think yeah. it is an issue. I mean, personally, I, I thought I had brilliant vision up until uh, the age of 40. And then um, I took my son to get a pair of glasses and I, I kind of was trying to join in with his test and I couldn't see it. I, <laughs> I do sometimes wonder, though, what what is it about the ice? I mean, I I still play snooker now without glasses and don't just don't need them. What 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 can't you see? <laughs> no, I just, I think it's your perspective changes, um, right? Sort of the, the, the near vision changes, and you're maybe just not seeing things 
quite the same way. You're not quite seeing them as sharply, maybe, as before. I mean, we've already mentioned Dennis, of course, you know, famously winning in glasses. And to me, people yeah. people talk about the nature of that final, understandably, because it went to the last black. But the great achievement for me as someone who wears glasses was the fact that he, he won it in a pair of, you know, gla- <laughs> glasses that he was sort of ribbed for and, and you know, mocked for when he stopped, yeah. first started wearing them. But needless to say, he had the last laugh. He did, I'm gonna, I'm going to say Jack Carnham. Yeah. Jack Carnham, yeah, he was uh, an optician, weirdly, as well as a snooker commentator. Uh, yeah, he made them. I'm going to move on. We've got one more email, and then, in fact, we've got two more emails. James Heat, uh, I enjoyed your conversation with Phil Yates about the US Open pool. Do you happen to know why they racked using a template in the earlier rounds and a conventional triangle in the later rounds? Well, James, I've looked into this, and apparently it's because they had so many tables that they, the sort of senior referees obviously couldn't referee all of them, so it was easier to use that template and then as you say later on they switched to the triangle so it's just because they had so many matches to get through apparently that was the reason Paul Mastrelli now this is about the British Open Paul has sent his his idea for what the format should be um, now obviously we're, we're an audio service so we can't actually see it but he, he does give some explanation it comes down to starting three days earlier you start, he wants to start it on the Friday um, he says to cater for the four table format much smooth, smoother transition between rounds. The tournament would have to be elongated by a few days. Uh, he says the draw for each round should take place live on ITV4. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 you can't see what he's said, so it's kind of a bit redundant me talking about it, other than to say the problem really, Paul, is it's uh, elongating the tournament because that adds cost. It adds cost to hiring the venue. It would add production costs for the broadcaster, significant, if you're going to do three more days. I think possibly the solution, because it was a very busy event, although they got through the matches, you know, they got through them pretty well. Um, but maybe just filter a few out with qualifiers. That's what they're doing for the home nations. Um, let's be honest, you know, we're all snooker fans, but there are some matches there that you don't need to see at the venue. Um, the other thing is ITV4, who the broadcaster for the British Open th- this season, they're also at the mercy of live racing. So there's some afternoons, like the last afternoon, they couldn't show any snooker because they had racing on. They have to share with other sports. So that comes into all formats. In terms of having the draw for every round live, the problem with that is it goes on forever in the early rounds. I mean, if you do the draw for the last 64, you know, that's 32 matches you've got to pull out. 64 names, obviously, that, that takes about 15 minutes. Not great telly, really. Um, they, Will Snooker did the draw in the players' room, which, which was not great telly either, but it wasn't, but it wasn't live. They just put it on YouTube. Um, but thanks for you, you've thought about it which is good and uh, you did say feel free to send this on so I will send it on and uh, we'll see what they say maybe they'll go for it in which case I'll hail you a genius but uh, that's the issue I think uh, lengthening the tournament because broadcasters pay for a certain uh, number of days the venue is high for a certain number of days so if that is increased then the costs also also increase did you see any of the British Open Dave? Yeah, bits and bobs, mm. and um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I like I like format changes mm. or people who think about them in depth. No, no, it's very it was very in depth. I just yeah. can't. I haven't worked out a way to actually show it on screen because we don't have a screen. No, because <laughs> we're because um, we're because we're a podcast. We are. Um, I also um, did watch quite a bit of the poll. I'm one of these idiots who thinks who watches a bit of it and thinks I could win that. Mm. <laughs> And then clearly I'd get absolutely hammered um, all over the place. But I used, I used to play, um, Leeds is obviously famous for the Northern Snooker Centre, which is up for sale. Yeah, big I news, saw you yeah. put that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. dear, I hope it's not some bloke who wants to renovate flats or something. 
Well, that's the concern, isn't it? I mean, because that it's 47 years the Williamsons have owned that, and it was you know the key thing about the Northern is it opened before the snooker boom, so they saw an opportunity yeah. before really you know the game had exploded. And yeah, I mean, if that ever if that ever closed as a snooker oh. club, that would well be awful, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's my it's my local. It's yeah. where I've always played my snooker, so that'd be terrible. There used to be a really good pool place in Leeds called the Elbow Rooms. Right. Um, I used to play quite a lot of pool. I think that closed down, unfortunately. Um, but I sort of won a couple of times there, won a few things. The uh, I think it's it's when you say how big the pockets are that it, it mm. lulls you into a sense of security. That, that that's the be all and end all. When obviously the tactics are, are beyond what um, silly amateur players like me think uh, that you need to be able to to know. Because um, when I play. Um, so when you play the average person they, they just sort of sling the white all over the place, they can play but they sling the white all, all over the place and because the pockets are so big they just go in off all the time they've just got to sort of keep a, a, a quiet white on them but yeah I, I enjoyed Judd playing that, I'd like to see more of it he's, uh, you were saying Mark Selby's done really well at, over there well, he's, well, Mark Selby, as we record this, he's playing in an eight-ball event, the ultimate uh, pool event uh, this evening. It's on Free Sports um, with Gareth Potts, his, his brother-in-law. I think the thing about nine and eight-ball pool, for the sort of regular guy and girl, they're, they're more enjoyable to play because yeah. a frame of snooker, if you know good, can last for an hour. And it's, <laughs> no, it's no fun for anybody but on a full-size table. But pool in a convivial sort of pub atmosphere is a lot of fun. We've got about 10 minutes left, Dave, so I want to just... Uh, throw a couple of things over to you. I was interested in, obviously, you know, you say you were a fan in the 80s, you sort of drifted back to snooker. Who are Dave Tindall's sort of favourite players, going back in the day and sort of more more modern? Yeah, so I, I, I was very much of the Steve Davis fan club. Mm. Uh, not literally like the David Taylor fan club. <laughs> um, yeah. I was, he, he just coincided with me getting into snooker, his rise, um, and I thought that was great because it, it allowed me to to kind of get on board with somebody new rather than someone like, I don't know, maybe like John Spencer or, or Ray Reardon. Although I did really like Ray Reardon. And, and my first snooker queue was a John Spencer snooker queue. Uh, yeah. Then I, had a, I think I had a Jim Rempe pool queue. <laughs> wow. It was quite a thing. Um, but yeah, so, so growing up, Steve Davis was my hero. And that... And obviously, 81 was fantastic. That was just, it couldn't have gone better. Sometimes you watch sport and you, you kind of hope that the guy you've invested all this emotion into will do what he's supposed to do. And Steve Davis did it that year and it was just perfect. And then in 82, this, this still gets to me now. I don't exactly wake up in a cold sweat, but when, when I think of, a sport, so I support Liverpool sometimes, and, and that's been a really good thing to, to be in the last few years. But during some of the more iffier times, and maybe, maybe I thought this in the in the Champions League final in 2005, I kind of think back to Davis versus Tony Knowles as as the ultimate in something that can go wrong. Mm. So, so I started thinking it's possible that a team you're playing against could have eight shots on goal and score all eight and it's going to be eight nil. And and it just, it panics me that that could happen because it did happen. And I watched that unfold 
was a massive Steve Davis fan, and it was just awful. It was just I couldn't. I I, I still think that's got to be one of the biggest shocks I've ever seen. I know Hendry lost. Did he lose nine nil? To Marcus Campbell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to Marcus Campbell. But I still think, what event was that? And it wasn't in a massive event, was it? UK it was the UK. It was not non televised, but I mean that's right. you know he still he still, yeah. he still got it's still not the world. Yeah, mm. still not the world. So for Davis to to do that and to get hammered mm. um, is odd. And, and bizarrely, I um, well not bizarrely, but I grew up in Whitehaven, um, in Cumbria, and very occasionally would would get a kind of guest snooker player come and play at the Whitehaven Civic Hall and Tony Knowles came there to to play Jimmy White and I was a big Jimmy White fan and I I, I must have blanked it out but you know my diaries that we we read mm. from yeah um I looked at and found the date it was about 1984 or five and Tony Knowles beat Jimmy White 9-1 <laughs> I thought there's something spooky about this whenever I go to <laughs> watch a play that I really love and Tony Nels hammers them so <laughs> that's a bit odd yeah um, what was the original question? No I was just asking about your favourite player so let's update it then so since you've come back to snooker I, I know you went you saw Ronnie O'Sullivan I think at the Crystal yeah. this year didn't you that was, uh, that was exciting yeah so uh, I mean I'm, it's fairly I mean obviously Davis was wasn't a great entertainer as such but I was a big Alex Higgins fan and I, I very quickly when Davis went out in 81, I did, I did jump on the Alex Higgins sort of bandwagon and and, um, and was thrilled to see him win. But I think at that age, I think I was starting to appreciate the Maverick more. Mm-hmm. So I was I was sort of thrilled to see John McEnroe winning Wimbledon, having just thought he was a brat when I was a little, a smaller kid. I was beginning to see sort of talent, wayward talent or fragile talent because with Higgins... Because he was so all over the place with his body movement, you were just on edge at every single shot. Plus, you're on edge about how he might react to missing. So mm-hmm. definitely Higgins. Um, I, I really, really didn't like Stephen Hendry, Ooh. which is really odd because I love him now. I think he's great. Mm-hmm. I, I just want him to win every match. It's not going to happen. But I think all his his um, his commentary is great. I like his musical taste. He likes the Smiths and stuff like that. Um, so I think he's brilliant, but at the time I, I just, I don't know. I wouldn't say, did he drive me away from snooker? Maybe this is an essay I can start to write, <laughs> when, but I don't know. It, it just became too, too obvious that he could win. And I remember that year when he, he fell in the shower and, and broke his mm. arm. Mm. And cause I was so into Jimmy White back then it had moved. I was thinking, finally, finally we're going to get, and he still won. And he, I could not believe it. So he kind of blocked my path a bit then we talked about this on another podcast my um dallas um coma years mm. i didn't get into it but so nowadays a massive ronnie fan i root for the guys who i see in the northern snooker center david mm. grace and peter Lyons, oliver Lyons. so i'd be rooting for them um i do like neil robertson just really good to watch and i really like judd i think one of my um Perhaps going back again, I think Judd needs to win the World Championship again. But I think the World Championship needs Judd Trump to win it again. Mm. I think we've, we're, and this is why I'm more open to it moving because it might take that. I don't know. I, I always, this kind of, it's a bit of a strange area, this one, because 
Judge Trump is kind of the best player, but he's not. And in previous eras, the best player just won a load of world championships and it's not happening. So it's a bit confusing. I still think, though, yeah, I agree, but there's still time. Listen, he's 32. Um, if you look at some of the other players, John Higgins, he won his first world title when he was very young. He won his second just before his 32nd birthday and he's gone on to win four. Mm. Mark Selby was 30, when I think, when he won his first world title. You know, he's gone on to win four so far. Um, and even Ronnie, we've seen the longevity he's had. So, you know, we, we don't know is the point, That's, isn't it? We don't know. Um, we, we take your stats on board with the left-handers. <laughs> but here's a question, though, going back to that. So, because Ronnie O'Sullivan plays a lot of shots left-handed. So have you factored that into your, to your calculations or not? <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> that would be far too confusing. I've not got an algorithm that does that. And in terms of, um, I'm, I'm interested in, because obviously, you know, I work in snooker full time. And, and I think you lose a little bit of perspective when you do that, because, you know, it's something that I'm involved in all the time. As a, as a fan who sort of come back to the sport, how much snooker would you watch during the year? There's a lot of people who will watch everything. There are some people who will dip into the big events, as we do with all sports. Where, where, where do you sort of stand? Because there's a lot of tournaments going to be coming up shortly. Yes, at the moment, I'm obviously craving some snooker. Yeah. Um, the World Championship, I will watch mm. every possible session. I'm, I'm quite lucky. I'm, so I'm a freelance sports writer. So I, I work, well, because of COVID, I work all the time from home. Mm. But I've got the option to always have it on. So yeah. sometimes it might not fall right because I've, I've got commitment with the kids and stuff like that. But I can sometimes watch a maybe middling event or virtually most of it. Mm. But yeah, I, I watch a lot of snooker nowadays. Um, I just back to that why anyone watches snooker. Maybe I just find it absorbing. Um, well, well, it's it's it, it's it's good that you've come back. A lot of people have said that over the lockdown. You know, they've sort of I guess because people were just stuck indoors and they've just sort of discovered it again and maybe remembered why they liked it in the first place. We're going to have to wrap up there, Dave, but thanks for coming on. That's flown by. We could have we could have gone on. That's flown by. We must have you on again. Um, uh, in, in future weeks, if that's all right. But uh, thank yeah, you for your fun. Yeah. Thank you for your company. Yeah. I, sh I should say, as we always do, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. You can check out their other podcasts. Uh, you can email us snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. The qualifiers are going on today, as we record this. Uh, this is people say snooker's an eccentric sport. Okay, Stephen Hendry's gone to Barnsley for a tournament where they're playing for the Stephen Hendry Trophy. That tournament is the Scottish Open in, <laughs> in Wales. So that's where we are at the moment in the snooker world. These qualifiers are, are dragging on and on. I know why. It's because they make money from the betting streams. Good luck to them. I've said it before, though. I think they could do a bit more with the coverage because it is kind of a bit anonymous. You know, it's, it's almost witness protection scheme anonymous. It's going on. I'm sure people are enjoying it, but it's not exactly being foregrounded very much. Uh, but the next event, TV event, will be the Northern Ireland Open, and that starts in a couple of weeks. So we will actually have some snooker and then after that they come pretty much thick and fast which is good news because as dave said we missed it but uh, we must wrap up there dave once again thank you for your company yeah cheers dave and uh, we'll be back in some form or other next week sports social podcast network with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.